This is Top CEO. The show about CEOs making tough decisions. Featuring CEOs from startups, scale-ups, and Fortune 500 enterprises, Top CEO is a business school case study. Telling the story behind the story and what you can learn from it from those who have faced the fire and come out the other side. Welcome to the Top CEO Podcast. I'll start by saying I made the worst possible decision of my CEO career. And the warning bells are there. Imagine you're the CEO of Method CRM, a customer relationship management platform designed specifically to empower small businesses. You've built a prototype that holds the promise of limitless customization. No coding required. I didn't make a fool of myself by promising something you couldn't deliver on. No code is real. Like the idea that you can go down Silicon Valley and compete against a bunch of developers, it was just a proof point. Your platform unlocks endless possibilities, making entrepreneurs' dreams come true. But now, you're standing on a cliff's edge. Now we're over a year later, and now we still haven't launched, and then everyone's getting upset again. It was one of those times where I just felt that everything was fragile. Technical debt is piling up. Your prototype's limitations are no longer hidden. They're screaming for attention. And there's a tidal wave coming. The mobile-first revolution that could wash your platform away. And it felt like we hit the finish line. But, I mean, you've heard this term before, the finish line's in the starting line. And so that's what it was. You've also set your sights on creating a marketplace for small-scale app developers. One wrong move, and it's not just a step back, it's freefall. I said back to the head developer, I said, I'm not going through a year of you breaking things. And that was the worst decision of my career. Do you move ahead with what you've built? Or do you go back to the drawing board to re-architect the whole platform? The choice you make could either vault your company to new heights or sink it into oblivion. So board meeting has become interesting, right? So uh, where are we in the timeline? I don't know. It's a very tough answer to give to a board. This is the story of Paul Jackson, CEO and founder of Method CRM. And this is the Method Meltdown. Paul, it's been an interesting journey for you, 13, 14 years in this process. And take me through the original vision of Method, what you were trying to create, and this prototype that you needed to get out to launch this company in the 2010, 2011 timeframe. Well, first, Ben, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate being on your podcast here. The goal we had was before the term no code was even in existence, but we were we were creating a no code platform for small businesses. Just for anyone listening, I mean, no code, I mean, it's very in vogue now, but it's like a set of tools where you don't have to be a developer to write code, but still you have some superpowers you can do to make things happen because the tool hides all of that and allows you to point and click and configure at various levels of complexity 
to execute tasks. That's very in vogue now, but circa 2010, 2011, it wasn't really like a concept yet. There were certain tools and people were trying to make it simple, things easier, but you embraced this. And what was the goal that you were going to empower small businesses to do? What were they going to be able to create using your platform? They're going to create custom workflows to solve their whatever pains they had in in their growing businesses. And really, ultimately, it was that customers didn't break up with us anymore. That was really the the problem that we originally trying to solve. We had, it was 2010. We had um, just been acquired by a uh, our previous software company, Q Express, just been acquired by a private equity company, and we're sitting around thinking, okay, well, we're not going to move to to Wall Township, New Jersey, where this this other company that acquired us was. Uh, what are we going to do? And we thought about what the problems we saw with our with our current software company, and that was that. Customers, they're small and they're five people. They're different from when they're a 10 person company and they're different from their 20 person company and so forth. And, and that as they change, the, their needs adapt. The, the software that we were selling them back then was uh, a one size fits all software. And as their needs outgrew this one size fits all software, they would break up with us and it would go somewhere else. And we we're just trying to think how do we solve that problem? Like, how, how can we allow software to adapt when needs change without having them leave? And you set out then to create a prototype, as many startups do, to get some initial traction, some initial sales. Usually there's a term which is like a minimum viable product, which is what can you sort of get out the door that satisfies customers enough? It doesn't have all the bells and whistles. It doesn't have your entire wish list of stuff, but it's out the door. And you were successful in doing that, correct? And you got something out the door that people would actually give American or you're in Toronto, Canadian currency or wherever in the world for, and and they would gladly do it. How was that process? Was it smooth to just get your first product out there, your prototype? Yeah. And and so most of our customers are in the US. So we are fortunately getting US dollars, which we eventually do turn into Canadian currency uh, at exchange rate, which is nice. Um, But the MVP, minimum viable product, the degree of complexity changes based on the, the application you're making. And when you're making what is essentially a, a no-code platform and you have a team of, I think we have eight people to start off with, it's hard. <laughs> like it's like a, it's a, it's a behemoth of a platform. You have to create the engine that allows you to drag and drop and move objects around and create an engine so that people have a little wizard. Hey, when this button's clipped, what do you want them to do? And it has to do various things from uh, charging a credit card to saving a record or showing a record and all these things that you, you need your MVP to do and then to allow them to sign in and, and so forth. It, it became a, a pretty big project for a small team to do, but we we got it out and it was really just like answering the question, would, would people want this? Would people want to make their own apps? Like would they take an app that we built using this and, and modify it versus buying Salesforce or buying something else that was out there on the market that didn't require you to make any customizations? That was the question that we were answering with this this prototype, this MVP. So you launch the prototype and you get the answer, which is yes, people want this. You have customers and things start to grow. Yeah, paying customers, enough paying customers to even raise a Series A from a venture capitalist. So life, life was good. We had traction. Okay, you had traction there. They would use the phrase product market fit. You're starting to see that there's maybe some people want this. You didn't make something that no one wants. That's good. And at this point is really the critical CEO decision because you raise a series A, you know, this was never intended to be your like end all be all. This is like, you know, the the super platform. It was to sort of get you further along, validate your market, validate your product, raise some funds. 
But then at this point, you've got a pretty big decision as CEO, meaning do you continue to iterate on what you've already done, which it exists, it's real, people pay money for it, and they stick with it? Or do you say, you know, that was like just to get us over that initial hump, we needed to show what we could do, but really we didn't necessarily architect this the way that was the ideal way. We did it the way that we could deliver a MVP, minimum viable product. And the reason why it's minimum is because we didn't do all the things we wanted to do. So that's the decision you're faced. How did you start making that decision, which ends up to be a critical CEO decision at this point? Yeah. And the warning bells are there. So I'm not sure there's a day where it's, where we're like, okay, we've raised capital, all right? Okay. The prototype phase is over. We're just moving along and we're getting customers. We're listening to their feedback. We're making changes. But you start hearing the the problems. So you have the, the developers and the architect, architects saying, yeah, it's getting really really complex in there. There's like some spaghetti we got to clean up and and uh, we have technical debt. And you know, I ran a software company before. I, I wasn't coming across this term of technical debt. You know, how much do we owe? <laughs> Who do we owe it yeah. to? Who are we paying this interest to, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do we do? Like, do we need to get a loan to pay back the technical debt? What is this? What is this debt that exists? And how do we get here? Yeah. At some point, maybe, and for anyone who hasn't developed software before, at some point, maybe you just need to get something to work. And someone just maybe did a shortcut. It's not the most scalable way, not the way that if you're not a software developer, I'd almost put it in terms like if you were doing remodeling of your house, you could just paint over something and underneath it might be like broken or not really great, but you put paint over it. You don't see that underneath there's a problem and that might last you for a while until that problem resurfaces or gets worse or like, oh my gosh, you're going to now remodel your kitchen, but you realize that there's this thing underneath the kitchen that you actually got to deal with now, right? Is that a good way to describe like technical debt? You sometimes you just got to deliver things. You do the coat of paint, it kind of works, but maybe your foundation isn't strong. Yeah, so absolutely all of that for sure. And also sometimes you, you develop the way you best think is, is what you need. And then your needs change. Like there's new business needs. And then you realize that, hey, if I knew that a new business need existed, like if I knew, like in our case, we had business needs. It was, it was like, listen, the mobile app, the mobile first uh, methodology is is all the rage and it makes sense. Like when you develop an app on a desktop, you want it to work on a phone as well. And we didn't develop it that way. We hadn't thought about that in the original prototype phase. It was made for a, a browser on desktop. It wasn't made for mobile. And so that becomes a technical debt that we have this thing that wasn't really made to fit on a screen that's this, this small. And that um, that needs to be thought about too. So we had so we had our developers saying, "Hey, this is going to be harder and harder to scale the way that we currently built it." And we have the business side saying, "Hey, we're not mobile first, so we're not great on a mobile app developer." We also had another uh, business team, which was a marketplace. We we found that some of our early users of this were actually people who wanted to make their own apps and sell their own custom apps on the platform which we hadn't really thought about, like a cottage industry of app developers, and that needed to be factored into future improvements as well. So all, in a way, technical debt because we have to overcome these, these, these challenges in the technology. Paul Jackson stands at the most critical juncture of his career. The very prototype that launched Method CRM into the spotlight is revealing its cracks and the weight of technical debt threatens to collapse the entire foundation. 
the horizon is darkening with the inevitable shift to mobile-first applications. A revolution that could render Method CRM obsolete. The stakes? A marketplace that could either revolutionize small-scale app development or become a graveyard of unrealized potential. So, what comes next for Paul and Method CRM? Do they forge ahead, refining their prototype and braving the storm? Or do they go back to square one, risking time, money, and their hard-won reputation? Paul, the decision now is either stick with what you've got, don't worry about certain types of technical debt, we'll deal with it later, or deal with certain technical debt in the platform that is like critical, but stay on there. Or you can create something totally new to disrupt yourself, which is start something new, wash away the technical debt, but then you've got to build a new house. So it's like, are you going to remodel the house you have or are you going to build a new house? And what is your decision at this point there, which, which leads kind of to the next phase of the company? Yeah. And I'll start by saying I made the worst possible decision of my CEO career. And so I was presented with two options. Option one, as you said, we can, we can iterate from the prototype into the things that we need to do. We can clear the technical debt. We can make it mobile friendly. We can make an app marketplace. We can get there through iterations. Or B, we can tear it down, build a new home. We can make a brand new platform that will do all these things that, uh, that you need. And those are the two options I was presented with. And this is this seemed like a pretty easy decision to make. And I probably gave it 10 minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. At this point, 10 minutes, probably like you're going by gut feel, right? A lot of people do. And, and sometimes you have to, because you don't have all the information, but yeah. you, like, your gut tells you at this point that you want to rebuild the house. You need to start fresh. Yeah. Like I think my, my line was pretty abrasive that I said back to the head developer, I said, you guys break everything anyway. I'm not going through a year of you breaking things. Okay. So start fresh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and that was, um, as I said, the worst decision of my career. The worst decision you could that's a bold statement, but take us through maybe before we get to 2020 hindsight, why did that prove to be a bad decision? Just take us through the timeline of what happens, what you expected. You know, you're going to build a new house, build a new platform. How long was that supposed to take? And then what sort of happens timing wise as you progress? Well, so it was supposed to take six to 12 months to, to be at least past parity of where we were today. Um, but I, I can go a little deeper on that. So I think that the, they, they brought a, wrote a spreadsheet of all the areas where they had to get stuff done and the size of our team and the team we thought we were going to need to get this, this done. And they, they multiply everything out. And I think it was a lot longer than a year. And I just challenged them because I thought there's no way like it's, it can do way faster than that. All these one week for that, two weeks for that. I know I could personally do it way faster than that. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like you guys. And what I didn't understand at that time was how the law of diminishing returns and the cost of, of communication really slows down software development. I, I saw something that I could do personally, and I'm like, I'm a commerce guy, I'm a finance guy, like, but I can still code. I could personally code things in a day that they're putting us 20 days. And what I didn't understand was that it has to be that way. You can't get a person who understands product requirements as a product manager, can do design, can be a senior developer, can be a quality assurance person, 
and all in one and do it at the same time that someone like me, who's a founder with drive could do. And I, I, and so by pushing them back on their timelines, to something that made sense for me and appeasing me, I missed, I missed the reality of the situations. This has to be like a team sport, not an individual sport. And the issue is that if it's a team sport, I mean, I guess there's two problems. One, it probably is just going to need more time because you got multiple people involved and, and, and you've got to make the communication flow. But two, in this particular case, you actually had them revise the timeline to more of like an individual sport time frame, which is just going to be unrealistic and they're not going to be able to keep it. So it's probably, there was two options. I mean, either you just have a long time frame and just, but this one actually has a short time frame that can't be held. I mean, we didn't call the individual support the time, like, hey, do the timeline as if Paul was doing it by himself. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and the, I mean, divide by how many people there are. We didn't quite do it that way, but I think that's that's probably what they ended up doing, which was giving me an estimate that was something they, they thought was possible, but would make me happy. Okay, so basically they're trying to please the CEO. CEO says this is taking too long. The founder, yeah. they want to please him. Let me give a schedule that Paul likes. And you looked at it and you liked it. You liked it better. I liked it. Right, we can handle this. We can, we can figure out how to run the company for six to 12 months in this transition phase. We'll be good. I can sell this. This is good. Let's go. Sell it to who? Is it sell it to your investors at this point? Sell it to customers to sort of say that like, hey, we're going to, I don't know if there's critical customers that are seeing on the, on the old platform, you're not iterating as much. You're not changing. You're not adding their wish list of features, but you're saying like, like who do you got to kind of make sure is on board? We're now two years into this business, right? So there's now quite a lot of stakeholders. So we, uh, we have our staff who have to grind and get this thing out. We have our sales team. We have a sales team at that point. Like that was, that was our traction. Uh, it was who needs to be on board of this plan. Um, I've got, uh, I'm closing a series A round. So I've got investors that need to be on board with this. So there's a lot of people to bring into the full of the timeline and make sure everyone's aligned to, to what the, that year looks like. Okay. So you got them all on board. You had the year, the six to 12 months. And at what point do you start to be concerned about that timeline and, 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 and what are those concerns? One, there's just a concern of delivery, but two, there's a concern of like credibility with the stakeholders that you've now promised. And you start realizing you're going to miss the deadlines you, you set yourself. Yeah. Like almost, almost immediately within months, we are, uh, we have monthly all hands called town hall and, uh, and we do demo days where we're demoing the, the, the milestone and like, just couldn't get anything to actually demo. Right. It was, months and months and months of, of delays and whatever schedules we had were, were just revised and almost thrown out. It was probably six months, eight months in where we realized that this was going to take longer. And I felt it was past the point of no return. I felt like, well, you know, maybe it's only four months late, so it's not worth going back to the original version, scrapping the new one and iterating from the original one. Now, hindsight, that would have been better. That would have been better at that point. Okay. That, would have been that still would have been better to scrap that eight months or something like that. And so take us through the timeline and the actions you have to take, because as we've chatted about before, it also becomes a crisis of confidence, not just technology. Meaning, yes, you've got to deliver a technological product, a platform, but you also have to keep people motivated on board and they have to believe that you're going to get done. And what happens when you cross like a year and a half, you're further in, what starts to happen at that point? Yeah. So board meeting has become interesting, right? So, uh, where are we in the timeline? I don't know. It's a very tough answer to give to a board. Like there's, here's, here's a range. 
but I don't actually know because so far the confidence on on these estimates hasn't played out. So I can't all of a sudden get more confident now. Okay, so you didn't just try to say, oh, it's definitely October. You didn't want to give definites at this point. You're hedging because you didn't want to. Because I had, I had, and that had not worked. And so, so board meetings are like, okay, so the product thing is that's taking a while, but let's talk about sales. Let's double down on growth. We're still selling the old platform. Let's, let's like, let's keep selling that. And so a lot of the board meeting discussions are about uh, sales growth, not about product. And, and so of course that's, that's a little bit awkward. And then you have a, you have a sales team that is, is saying, well, uh, I feel bad selling to someone when I know that the platform that I'm selling them doesn't have a smooth transition path to the, the new platform when it comes out. And, and so we, we had to make sure we had a good plan for those customers. And then we had partners. So the partners was the really hard ones. We have at that time, we had over a hundred integration partners who would who would do customizations using the no code for their clients. Okay, so they're partners, but they're essentially reselling your platform with a service layer on top, and they need your platform to be solid so that they can make money and serve their customers and not have unhappy customers on them too. And then, so they sell uh, the existing platform, knowing that there's a new one right around the corner. And so, what do they what do they do? And so, so we really. We really, I think, did a disservice with these timelines to the partners because they were just stuck in purgatory. Like, what do I do? And so that started getting tough. I think, and this and this goes on for I don't know. So you said you had a year and a half. But this goes on for a couple of years before it's it's people are really starting to get upset. And I'm not, I'm I'm of all hands every every month saying, "Hey, this is where we're at." And sales are still going up. We're still doing well as a company, but the the idea of what are we selling is just becoming a bigger, bigger, bigger problem. Okay, so it's mounting, but you actually did have some fuel, some gas in the tank just from the initial product and sales, which means it was actually like minimum viable product, but solid, it can sustain you. It was solid, we should have stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so take us through, I mean, the, the full story is it takes you about three years, right, to launch the new platform. And what gets you over that last bit of hump to get there, to keep everyone bored, and you said, people are starting to get more angry that this has gone on. I felt that there just needed to be proof points along the way. And so there was a couple of times where I, I had opportunities just to make make sure everyone saw where we were going, that there was light game in the title. One was in mid-2013, we did an internal like hackathon, Sharks Tank kind of, uh, kind of event. So we, we told all the staff, form into teams of three to six uh, team members and create an app using the new unfinished platform and uh, pitch this app at, a, at an event to like a Shark's Tank panel of, of judges. And so we rented out uh, Second City. So Second City is a, a kind of comedy house. Yeah, like kind of improv comedy, kind of famous for like, I think Saturday Night Live performers came from there. Half the cast is from there. Like John Candy, so much Rick Moranis. Like. Oh, because you try to add some fun to it, right? You just wanted to make it fun and remind people and use that to boost morale. Yeah, and I think at that point, that one day where we had that event, uh, I remember thinking on the way back from the event, this is my, this is my favorite day as a CEO. I felt like I believed, everyone believed. They're like, oh, this is amazing. What we saw today was the future. People can actually build without code these quite amazing workflow apps. And that's, and the board loved it. They saw what, what, the, what the vision was. All these delays were, were for something. You can see what they're actually building. It is an amazing product. This is going to be great. And so everyone was, was happy. I was happy. I was pumped. And that rejuvenated everybody. 
of course, now everyone's like, well, why can't we just go ahead and sell it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, this is not actually ready. It was like good for a, a pitch, but it's not, there's a whole bunch of problems need to resolve and like you can't even pay for it. There's no like billing mechanism set up and like, well, yeah. And of course, different with your internal team, you don't really need customer support. It doesn't have to be that easy. You just work things out. You have access to the back end if you realize something so different than to sell it, of course. And then you replicated that also in an actual competition, right? I believe in Silicon Valley, you came and did something else. Yeah, that was another opportunity. So now we're over a year later and now we still haven't launched. <laughs> and then everyone's getting upset again. And it was one of those times where I just felt that everything was fragile. And I think every every leader and every founder probably has a certain point in their career where they feel like it's all going to cave in and, and die on me and, and and there's nothing I can do. And I was going through that. And even like there's points, and I talk to a lot of founders, I'm a founder myself, where there's a certain point where it's like, if I don't get done the things I need to get done today, it's on that thin of thread that like I have to execute these things today or things may crumble. Yeah. And it was like every little selling my body was saying this is it like if you don't if you don't do something major now everyone's gonna lose faith and it's just gonna fall apart it's all going for nothing and um so that was that was around october or so uh 2014 and into it the makers of quickbooks uh, announced that they were doing a qb connect conference big conference i think they had shack and, and a bunch of like really big big speakers come to this thing um, and they were competing against uh, a new entrant to the market named Zero, Zero Accounting Software. And so they wanted to make a big splash. They had all these events associated with this this conference. And so one of the events was this hackathon where they were going to uh, have a, an API that they're going to uh, give to software developers. And these software developers were going to make an app and then pitch to a panel of venture capitalists. And uh, the winner is going to walk home with a $50,000 US check. So for for software developers, right? And so uh, I was like, "This is it! This is the opportunity!" <laughs> so I, we had the all hands, and I boldly um, vowed to the whole company and invited all the the board members and the venture capitalists to this all hands, where I proclaimed, "We will go down to Silicon Valley. We will enter into a hackathon against all the Silicon Valley hackers, and we're going to win." I declare victory now. I was like the stupidest thing you should probably do as a CEO on the, on the verge of like <laughs> destruction. Um, that's what we did. So we went, we went down to this hackathon. There's 130 uh, software developers working on it. We brought a team down, but we had a, a designer. We had uh, me as the pitcher I pitched. And we, um, we had a software developer working on the API, which ended up being a, a payments API. And we stayed up all night long, just like the other 130 software developers. And we, we built an app. It was, it was called Method Donor. So it was a, a nonprofit app that allowed uh, nonprofits to uh, collect donations online and send a, a sales receipt that synced to their QuickBooks account software. And that was what we built overnight. And I uh, pitched it, and we were, we were finalists. And so the day of the announce, winners of announcements, we had the whole company streaming up live. We had the board members all texting, hey, when, when do you find out? When do you find out? <laughs> and, are, and are your fingers crossed? Are you saying a little prayer at this point? You're saying like, please. Oh, I'm like, come on, man. Come on, come on. We're so close. <laughs> and, then it, and then we won. So we, we, we actually won. And that was such a relief <laughs> because, because well, A, I didn't make a fool of myself by promising something we couldn't deliver on. But really, it actually proved out that 
no code is real. Like the idea that you can go down Silicon Valley and compete against a bunch of developers and win a, a pretty major competition, it was just a proof point. And that, and that proof point gave me at least six months of runway of confidence and morale for, for the team. Okay, so you did that. So you had those kind of other things that kept things moving along. And then three years later, lo and behold, you've released the platform. Were all of your problems solved and, and sort of puppy dogs and rainbows at that point? Or were there, when you launch a new platform, there's bound to be some <laughs> challenges too, because it's usually not perfect either. Yeah, and so so we launched in probably late spring 2015. It felt like we hit the finish line. The, I mean, you've heard this term before, the finish line's in the starting line. And so that's what it was. Uh, we had at least tested to make sure that conversions from a, a 30 day trial to paid were at a comparable number between the two platforms. So once that, once that threshold had been reached, turned off the old platform and turn on the new platform in terms of selling. And, uh, and, and of course, like there's problems, there's a maturity issue. So there's, there's, there's bugs we had to go through a period of, of stability, uh, which we had, we didn't have those issues on the old platform because it was so mature and so stable at that point. Um, and we had, uh, still a bunch of shortcomings that, that needed to be resolved. And so it wasn't, it, it took years before I could say it was mature. And so now we're like 2023, it's mature, <laughs> but it took a while to get to that point. Paul and the Method CRM team were under siege from all sides. Partners were caught in purgatory, uncertain of what they were even selling. Team morale was scraping the bottom, a cauldron of delay and doubt. But when the night is darkest, the stars shine brightest. First came the internal hackathon, a proving ground where they showcased the revolutionary power of their no-code platform. Morale had resuscitated, hope reborn. Yet, that was not the end. The final test was a grand arena where coders met as gladiators. The hackathon in Silicon Valley. With the rapt attention of the entire company and board members tuned in live, the Method crew masterfully navigated their keyboards, architecting a creative solution as they dared to hope for monumental triumph. Up against coding wizards and formidable competitors, they emerged victorious, proving to the world and themselves that their vision wasn't just a mirage. It was real, it was workable, and it was right at their fingertips. The clouds of doubt parted, morale was reborn. But while the team has conquered their trials, challenges still lay ahead. Paul, what was it from there? What was the new trajectory of the company? You mentioned that if you were to go back and do it again, you probably shouldn't have built a new platform. But once it's done, it's done. There's bugs, but you fix bugs. You go along. What was the trajectory after that? Were you feeling more confident? Were there new challenges? Was business continuing to grow? Was there blockers to that? How was the company doing at that point? Yeah, so we've we've continued to grow. And we like throughout the whole period, we continue to grow. Um, every month got easier than the previous month. Right. So, so we had a, we had a strategy that we, we had been following really from day one in terms of what we were trying to be as a company and how we were trying to approach the market. And so we just slowly moved towards the end goals of that strategy. 
you called it before, you call it a horizon strategy. Is that correct? Like you had kind of three things you were trying to accomplish. And so you're moving along those three things. You can explain what they are, but like in sequence or in parallel. In sequence. And the investment is in sequence, but they're all running in parallel. So so our, our horizon strategy is three, three bubbles. So like bubble one is uh, CRM. So can we make a no-code platform that allows people to use a CRM uh, just as well as they could a coded CRM. So can they you know, use a CRM that's made with no code, like they can use like Salesforce. That's proof number one, that's horizon number one. Um, and then horizon number two is, can we make industry specific apps, like a field service solution or a nonprofit solution or um, a manufacturing solution that competes against the manufacturing and nonprofit and field service solutions that are coded. And so we decrease investment in CRM, still keep the CRM, we add investment to this, the second horizon. Uh, and then and the third horizon is just going to market as a no code. So really just selling an app builder where people can make their own apps from scratch, uh, who are coders, so citizen developers buying it for that purpose. That's horizon three. So over those years, we keep moving along towards those, those goals. And what is the challenge now? What's blocking you from reaching those? What's fueling you to reach those? What are the new decisions, the CEO, that are going to be the critical ones, like the decision you had to build a new platform or not? I fortunately don't have such a major problem confronting me today. Um, it, it will come. It always comes. There's, there's a major problem right around the corner. Uh, but I would say we're, we're 100 people now. So we're we're at this stage where we have good leadership, we have established processes, we we have very predictable revenue, very predictable costs. It's a good stage to be at, uh, but to really to really scale from here, it means that we need to go more aggressively towards that the horizon strategy, um, and that requires funding, of course, which. We are we are a profitable company, so we we fund ourselves, but we don't we're not taking any more VC anytime soon. So we're not we have three vertical apps. We're not going to twenty vertical apps next year. We might go to four or five, right? And it's like this incremental growth that comes with the, an organic growth company like like what we are. And do you have team members who went through this all with you and stuck with it and are still there today? Or is it like, man, that was a tour of duty. I can't believe we got through that. We uh, won the hackathon, but like, I'm good. I'm good. I, I need to go to something that's a little bit more chill. How are you kind of inventing the team and the company and keeping morale up when you got through some really tough morale time? So um, the, the morale did uh, extract victims and <laughs> take them out of our company. So we, we, have, we have a few people who, of course, were there for the whole thing, the whole ride. And they're with me today. They're part of my leadership team today. I guess that's, they've just been, they know that much and they've learned and grown that much. Uh, but during such a chaotic period, leaders and team members and engineers came and went at a faster pace than they would at a more mature stage like we are now. So we lost some good people because of the turmoil, for sure. Um, and I don't think anyone was like, Anyone got to the other side, they're like, oh, wow, that was so stressful. I'm going to leave now. That wasn't the case. It was, this is too stressful. I'm, I'm pulling the chute. I'm out. Um, but those who got to their side of the chaos in 2017, 2018, around those maturity years, they're with me today. And what is your advice then for other CEOs, either A, facing this sort of this question? It doesn't have to be even technical based, meaning like, there's always this question of you built something, whatever it is, 
And then you get further along and realize that you might have made different decisions on how you did it because you understand your market or your product or there's new competitors, there's other things. What is your advice for CEOs in evaluating that? If you were going to do like more than the 10 minute version this time and you're going to help someone else, whether they're software based or not, what would be your advice and how to think about it? Yeah, I think the first key though is recognizing that you're about to make a material decision, which I don't know is easy because as founders and the CEOs, we're making a lot of decisions every day. Uh, and sometimes material decisions aren't as obvious that they're material as, as others. Now, in my case, I knew that was a material decision. And I still made a terrible choice. You need to understand the stakes of what you're doing so that you can be like, not going to fly by the seat of my pants on this one because the stakes are high. That's it. I think it's, so I think if you are understanding this as a material decision, so if I frame the question that way, then um, take, of course, just take the time and do the research. Like there's, if I, if I had done that, but I, I did realize this material, if I had done the research, I would realize there are books upon books written about the death of companies due to replatforming. Like this is a known thing that you don't do. And so I didn't do any of that. Um, and I would, and, and also there's others who are available for advice and I didn't seek advice as well. Um, so some of us, us founders out there are, don't need much advice. We don't think we do. We just drive ahead. We'll always figure out the problem that's in front of us. We're optimistic. We're problem solvers. Like we'll, we'll dive in and, and figure it out. But if you're making a material decision that is very hard to come back from, that's when you need to throw your pride away and get some advice. And that's what I did not do. You mentioned the point of no return. And as a CEO, you're allowed to make wrong decisions or just have more information or realize that the situation changes and and say that actually that was maybe the right decision given the situation, the information I had, but that situation or information is, is not the same. I need to change it. So at what point do you recommend like, you've got to stick with it because, hey, your team doesn't want the CEO to be like changing every day. Like Tuesday, we're, we're replatforming. Wednesday, we're not. Thursday, we are again. Versus giving yourself the freedom to sort of say like, oh, I might've made a mistake and I've got to turn back, which even you yourself say might've been the right decision at eight months in or something like that. Yeah. I think what I've, I've gotten better at as I've learned and grown personally is recognizing that there's a, that question to ask when you're making a decision is what's the cost to come back from a wrong choice? Cause I mean, we're making decisions every day and I, I like to be very decisive and make decisions, but I now stop and say, well, if this is the wrong decision, What's the cost to come back? And, and, and if it's really big, now I'll pause and I'll, and I'll really think about it. That's what I, that's how I've grown as a leader. And finally, what is your recommendation to other founders in difficult times? Maybe they made their decision. Maybe they passed the point of no return. Maybe it might not have been the right decision, but they're holding it together like you were holding it together and they've got to keep everyone's morale. They've got to keep belief. They've got to, decisions made water under the bridge. Now we've just got to keep going. What is your advice to them? If look for a hackathon, is it something else? Or is it like, what do you do to keep everything together? Well, I, I think it's a really hard time to go through as, as a leader, um, but especially as a CEO. I mean, it's, it's, there's definitely, this is not new news that the, the job is lonely. Like there's not many people to talk to. So if you are at a point where you have to carry a team through a tough period, you gotta put a brave face on and you and you gotta make sure you believe what you're saying. But you're saying things that like that don't have a hundred percent certainty. 
And that's tough sometimes. And so if you're just harboring all that self-doubt and worry yourself, you're not talking to someone about it, you're doing a disservice. So join a founders forum group, join a YPO, make sure you have a buddy who's a founder that you can go for long walks with and, and like vent to, it will help you. Cause I think I didn't have that. And so it was just all on me to just to stress through it myself. So I would say, make sure you have a good network of people you can talk to and people you can vent to that aren't your board, that aren't your staff. And there's a few things there. One, you might get advice. Someone might have some experience or know someone else. Two, you might just get support and it might just be therapeutic. But then three, you might get something that doesn't match at all, but it just allows you to riff off it, iterate off it, sparks an idea, something else. So, so one of the things I think that is underrated about those kind of conversations is that you might get benefit from it in multiple ways. And really like only one of those things, whether they get a great tip or you get some great support or you get something that is just out of left field, but sparks an idea in yourself that allows you to do it. There's multiple ways to win. And it's one of those things where CEOs, I feel like we never feel like we have time for that, for your proverbial, like long walk. No, it's like I got a fire today. Like I'm holding this on by a thin thread. I, I'm going to go walk for two hours with a buddy and we're just going to chat. I don't have time for that. Yet every time you do it, you're like, oh, that was so worthwhile. Like, why do I make more time for this? And this is this dichotomy, particularly when you're in a crisis, right? You feel like you don't have the time and yet it's so valuable when you do it. Yeah. hundred percent agree with everything you just said. Like I, I joined a a founders forum group. There's seven of us and we meet once a quarter and we all know everything about each other's companies and, and what we're going through personally as well. Um, so I would, I would join one of those if you're not already on one of those. And then, then your two hour walk doesn't have to be a two hour walk during crisis. It can be 20 minutes because they already have the context. You always have the time for 20 minutes. Method CRM launched with a dream of creating a no-code platform at a time when no-code was a term on the fringes of the tech world. As their ambitions met reality, the initial prototype strained to align with an ever-changing vision. No one model could cater to all. Method's one-size-fits-all software became a relic of the past as customer needs grew diverse and complex. The solution? A more flexible platform, simple in theory, intricate in execution, and riddled with its own new set of dilemmas. Their MVP wasn't just viable, it was a maze of complexities demanding relentless effort from a tight-knit team. Balancing broad functionality with user-friendliness was a Herculean task. And let's not forget the accruing technical debt that invisible burden growing heavier with each new feature, bogging down scalability. We live in a mobile-first world, and Method CRM's initial focus on desktop platforms became an Achilles heel. The newly acquired Series A investment poised a Shakespearean question, to iterate or to re-architect. Amidst all of this, Paul and his team listened. User feedback became the lodestar, a beacon in the fog of technical limitations and vision casting. In the face of daunting challenges, opportunities arise, demanding metamorphosis and inspire solutions that define our collective future. And with that, it's case closed. This amazing episode was brought to you by Top Thought Leader. 
don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.